HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on tour. Today, we're bringing you Inside the Slow Seed Summit, a conference hosted by Slow Food USA, presenting perspectives on food security, seed preservation and sovereignty, and community engagement. The conference took place between May 13th and 15th, 2022, and as media partners for the summit, we're excited to give you an inside look at key conversations. Enjoy this peek into the Slow Seed Summit. Welcome to day two of the Slow Seed Summit, everyone. We are so grateful to have you here and thank you for your patience in the waiting room. We've been uh, waiting to uh, log everybody on um, in a timely fashion. This is slow food, remember. Everything's a little bit slower than you expect sometimes. So thanks for rolling with it today. Um, So excited about this session. We have such amazing people that we have partnered with. Um, I am pulling up my notes here so that I can get everything correct when I talk about Dr. John. Um, Dr. John came to us through our um, Slow Books group. Um, I was first introduced to him through our Slow Books uh, group, trying to figure out um, how we can bridge that gap between the readings and also the celebration of food and the kinship, if you do it kind of diagonally, there you go. The kinship series um, editor, John is the editor of the Kinship series and also um, did a series called Wildness and also recently a book called What Kind of Ancestor Do You Want to Be? Um, He works for, um, he's an instructor at Western, sorry, where are you at? I'm the the Dean of the School of Environment at Western Colorado University. Yeah, yeah. And holds so many, so many different organizations all related to um, our topic today and our topic, this whole seed summit about kinship and connection. Um, and he has brought with us today our authors. So John, I'm going to let you introduce Dr. Lindsay and uh, sort of frame up what we're gonna do today. Yeah, well, it's such a great honor to be here, Mara. Thank you so much. And um, hello, everybody. Uh, you know, what we're going to look at today is uh, slow food as an essential practice in building kinship with the human and more than human world across 
diverse uh, human communities and extending far out into the, the more than human world that sustains us, how do we build the practice of kinship? I think seed saving, I think slow food practices, um, as Lindsay will talk about food as medicine, these are all um, accessible ways in which we can build upon, build up to the larger vision of human kinship. And um, one of the things that's really inspired me lately has been the personhood movement. You know, if you look at um, in New Zealand, a river was declared as having personhood. Um, the Ecuadorian constitution even talks about the rights of nature and based on the view of nature as having personhood. Uh, even the city of Toledo, Ohio has declared Lake Erie as having personhood. Sort of a play on uh, an antidote to the problematic way in which the Supreme Court in the 1800s viewed corporations as having personhood. We're now seeing a movement around uh, the more than human world as having personhood to the extent that Lake Erie could now sue um, agribusness for eutrophications, the destruction of the fishing industry from excessive use of, of chemicals. And so in this personhood movement, um, we have kinship and we, we have been merging in a five book collection called Kinship multiple scales at which we see kinship happening. The first book one is called um, Planet. It even goes out to looking at the person of the moon and, and, and moon as kin. The author arguing that if we can view the moon as kin, then there's no excuse from looking at every inch of earth as kin, right? We can stretch our, our moral compass that far, our sense of family. Um, and relational ethics that far. Uh, then we scale down to place, it's volume two, um, where my essay, Enrique Samon's essay, and Devon Pena's essay are located, uh, kinship in place. Then we scale down to uh, partners, looking at uh, within places how partnerships are formed across human culture, between human and more than human beings, between biotic and abiotic um, entities. Uh, that allow for living communities to exist down to persons and then finally practice the practice of kinship and i think seed saving i think slow food efforts is among it's about as accessible and and transcultural as you get when it comes to building a practice of kinship and so in that spirit i'd like to read just a piece from my essay in kinship um, just to give you a sense of the framework of kinship, I won't talk as much about food, but that framework of kinship. And then, and then I'll, I'll pass it on to uh, Dr. Lunsford, who, whose dissertation at Tuskegee University, Soul Food as Medicine, I think really gets at um, multi-generational practices of kinship tied to food, food sovereignty and solidarity. Um, this is about a, a piece of mountain in Colorado that owns me, an old mining claim my family and I bought 20 years ago and have been um, trying to understand our place on that mountain with that kin. I will never forget the winter solstice of 2008. The first of many at our tiny shack perched below the mixed limestone and forested shoulder of 12,000 foot terrible mountain in Colorado. From the first moment that my wife Karen and I committed to owning this shoulder of terrible, or better yet, committed in 2004 to this ridge owning us, it reminded us of a Chinese landscape painting, complete with crags cutting through fur canopy. For the 2008 winter solstice, 
Karen, my sister Stephanie, my brother-in-law Abe, and I skied up to the tiny shelter that we had built out of reclaimed decking and standing dead trees the previous summer. We pulled my daughter Adelia, a toddler, and my baby nephew Tyus in sleds behind us as we skied up to the shack. It was on this solstice trip that I first learned that kinship with land requires kinship with people on and through the land. On our second night, the solstice itself, Abe and I ventured out on skis for a quick sunset view, thinking it would take half an hour. The ski lasted three hours because the sky refused to darken. The sun sank slowly into Fossil Ridge to the west, transforming the white-peaked continental divide to the east into a canvas of orange and rose alpenglow. As the alpenglow receded into twilight, the sky shifted to a thousand shades of purple, coloring snowy ground in white aspen and violet hues. For a brief moment, Abe and I lived in a world of purple, underfoot, overhead, and from all directions, as if cosmos and land and we were merged as one. But it was Abe's glowing reaction that stands out over a decade later. Abe since passed from cancer. And this story is about 12 years later on the solstice in 2020, where I'm retracing my tracks with Abe to find a place to spread his ashes. And in trying to understand um, where Abe's ashes will form kinship ecologically with the soil and the biota in that place, I come to remember how my human kinship with Abe taught me the beginnings of how to have kinship with that land. And I will share that perspective, how I conclude and discover where to spread those ashes and what I learned about kinship uh, at the end of our session today. We'll shift to Dr. Lindsay Lunsford and then um, uh, Drs. Salmon and Pena. Um, I do not believe they're able to, to make it, but I do have some video we've done of them talking about this topic and I'll share a bit of their writing uh, and talk more specific to their work on seeds. I will pass it on to Dr. Lunsford, who's a research professor at Tuskegee University, um, who's working on a brilliant book out of her dissertation, wrestling with this idea of soul food as medicine and, and food as a, the basis of the practice of kinship and kinship as a form of resistance. And uh, Dr. Lunsford, good to see you, my friend. I'll, I'll let you get going. Thank you so much, Dr. John. Um, good to see you as well. Um, so happy to be here, everyone. I'm going to go ahead and get right into my reading and then offer a little layering on top at the end. Um, so this essay is one that focuses and is very close to me as it focuses on my own history, but definitely um, doing some honoring of ancestors as I focus on the story um, specifically of my grandparents um, and then my grandfather, who I, who I only know through family legend and lore and story um, and the way that his life imprinted me. So I will get right into this. <laughs> so um, and then also I said I get right into it, but I have one more thing, right? Um, before I get right, right into it, it's also written to future ancestors that are yet yet born. So children that aren't born yet to me, to others. Um, and so it's this reckoning of where I am in my place and where those that have been that made us and made me, and then the journey that will be to bring these folks in to where they can actually hear this story. So. And, and Lindsay, you, you do have time to read the whole letter if you would like to. 
Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, let me get right into it. <clears throat> so, sorry. Daughters and sons, I do not yet know. I aspire to be the kind of ancestor that leaves something of value behind. Land, your seat, where you'll stand, and if need be, where you are willing to fall. It is our ancestors who leave us our land, our seat, our place in this world. I aspire to be the type of ancestor that leaves behind a place upon which my descendants can set themselves. That is what my grandparents did for me, and it was no small feat. I'm typing this essay in my grandmother's home, her Pearl of Price, her Beulah land. She passed seven years ago, but her home still stands, and it is in this place that I inhabit as a young woman seeking to make her claim in the world. For my grandmother growing up a Black female bastard child in the South during the early 1930s, it could not have been easy. Not when her would-be fair skin was not fair enough to blend in with the rest of her families. All courtesy of her father, a man who could not deliver her his last name, but was able to give her some hints of his mahogany skin tone, just enough to leave her cast away from a color-struck society. So she worked, she studied, and she made way for herself eventually attending and graduating from Tuskegee Institute, now Tuskegee University, in 1947, the same year she married Emmett Lunsford. Emmett was a man, a few years her senior, whose velvet skin was many shades darker than hers, a man who accepted and embraced my grandmother. Emmett was determined. His name was Emmett because he spent four years be being called, his name was Emmett, but he spent four years being called George as he worked as a sleeping car porter and a card carrying member of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the first major labor union run by African-Americans. I will say by Black people. Black sleeping car porters attended the trains and were called George after George Pullman, the owner of the Pullman Standard Car Company. It didn't matter their age or what their real names were. These men were to be no more than a smile, a wave, and a hand to carry your luggage. Understand, it was an honor to have this occupation, no matter how demeaning. It was my grandfather's place to find his pride in his position, to find meaning from within the very midst of misery. Emmett worked as a sleeping car porter, dealing with the blows of segregation and blatant racism so he could pay for his education at Tuskegee. While in school, he continued to work, even sweeping George Washington Carver's floors for his work study position. Emmett did this process of alternating between working as a porter and then attending school for 12 years before obtaining his degree and becoming an educator. He would then move my grandmother above the Mason-Dixon line to Indiana, the place of my birth. It was here in Indiana my grandfather would make history as the first Black guidance counselor in the entire state. But that wasn't e easy either. To do this, my grandfather had to obtain a graduate degree in the 1950s from a predominantly white institution. That was not easy. It's not easy now, but it was unfathomably harder then. 
My grandfather could work. He could study long, but no matter how hard he exerted himself, he could not get his skin to transform into the shade of white needed to excel in the academic environment in which he was placed. My grandfather would turn in papers always to have them return failed and dissected until the day a white classmate and he tried an experiment. They switched papers. My grandfather turned in his white classmates and his white classmate turned in his. Of course, my grandfather received another failing mark, but for the first time, he got to witness his work under another name returned with passing colors. My father advocated to administration and his teachers were forced to pass my grandfather despite their, his teacher was forced to pass my grandfather despite his racist proclivities. So no, my dear ones, do not take your education for granted when your mind come from, comes from those that were denied, those that were despised, and that those that were incapable of ever truly being suppressed. And I think I'm going to stop there. There's a little bit more to it, but I think we'll um, go ahead and just stop there for the essence of time. And I thank you all for letting me go ahead and do that reading. Lindsay, thank you so much. Let's all... Uh in the chat or through an emoji, thank Dr. Lunsford uh, for such a powerful reading. Um, and then Lindsay, there's, there's something um, in your work that I'd like for you to speak openly about if you don't mind. And that is if you could share a bit of what you've done since an undergrad at Tuskegee through your MEM at, at our program at Western Colorado, your master's all the way through your PhD and your current job in, in helping restore um, Black connectivity, helping to heal from land-based trauma, helping to return to sustainable food sovereignty systems in, 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 the, in the Black Belt. Um, how, um, help us understand the phrase soul food is medicine and, and, and how your dissertation maybe reflects continuation of the family legacy you just shared, the kinship both with your family and, and with the land that you're now working with. Yeah, thank you for that question. I always, um, so for those that might not know, Dr. John was a member on my dissertation committee and he helped me wrestle with this. Um, he and others helped me wrestle with this nugget that I looked over in research, which was this concept of, um, here com commonly people talk about food as medicine. So I was like, what about soul food as medicine? And people were like, <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> like that is the antithesis of medicine. It kills black people every day. And I was like, does it? Are there numbers about that? Is there not a thing or is that what we feel is a thing? Is that a narrative? Is that a story? I know it's a major motion picture. There was a major motion picture called Soul Food that I think did a really good job of displaying the current kind of narrative of like what, how people kind of tend to see soul food. Um, which for those that aren't necessarily familiar with soul food or maybe come from a culture that you would maybe identify soul food as something different. Um, I'm speaking about the popular term for a concept of like what's known as like traditional or traditional African-American heritage cooking, which is often called soul food. Um, and just how to like reclaim that and reimagine that. Um, and so I began to look more at the concept of soul food as healing, just because the word medicine has so many already claimed, I would say, uh, historical connotations that kind of 
a ride, what is medicine and who has access to it. Um, and looking more at, at how food is used to heal and that connection across culture. And so I remember Dr. John giving me some good advice, which was like, your dissertation should be answering a question that no one is asking. And so to me, no one was asking how bad soul food is for you you or or why do people believe soul food is bad like what is the that was the question for me and so I began to get into that research and do oral histories and narratives and actually look at what other scholars had posited but even before myself um scholars such as like Dr. Psyche Williams Corson um Dr. Ashanti Reese and others that had already done research on this and yeah like if you scratch the surface just a little bit, you might find some white supremacy hanging out under there. And that's pretty much what I found when it came to the narrative of soul food. Black people have always been shamed. Uh, Black people are still shamed to this day for eating watermelon. Like that's a really common, easy trope if you want to shame or degrade or um, be unkind to a Black person, be cruel is to make a joke about like, you know, eating watermelon. Um, and it's like in that instance, we're like back 400 years um, into some really painful and heavy things. And, and watermelon is so healthy. It's full of lycopene. Um, so it's like that shame still exists. Um, and so it's like, how do we have this narrative where it's like we shame black people for eating watermelon and then we attribute them to like fried chicken and all these like really bad um, diseases, but also there's such thing as food gentrification where you have people or a concept of food gentrification where you have traditional foods um, being come so trendy and Instagrammable, like the TikTok picture. Now oxtails are getting so, and other products are getting so overpriced that p- communities that traditionally depended on them for, uh, for making like traditional uh, heritage cooking and meals aren't able to access them because the ingredients are skyrocketing. Um, Or you even have other chefs that are maybe not, are you think it's such a a crime when you see, um, you might see African-American or black chefs being afraid to cook something like fried chicken because they'll be labeled folk or labeled, you know, like basic. Um, Whereas you could have someone from a different background and culture do it and get, raise and um, get shows and be at a five-star restaurant because it's like, oh, it's so novel. Oh my gosh, this is, you know, insert culture. Here's fr- version of fried chicken. I love it. It's nouveau, it's riche, but the Black person does it. It's like, oh my God, have we checked our cholesterol levels lately? And that's just, it's a lot of stigma. Um, so I'll land my plane there, as the kids say, um, since I finished my dissertation, I've really been getting into investigating food stories. And even with my students, like get into the basis of like, you know, they, I always say you, if they say you are what you eat, then the best parts of me came from my grandmother because I was the best food I've ever eaten. Um, and so for so many reasons, right. It's not just, I'm sure there's a cook out there that's like, you've never had this pasta, but it's, it's the memories, right. It's, it's where the food took me and how it made me. Um, so I like to ask people, what are their, like, who made you? Like, what are the best parts of you? Where'd they come from? Is it like a local diner? Is it um, a person? Is it yourself? Like, who made the best parts of you? Um, and so getting to investigate that with students and getting to uncover their, we all have a food story um, that's like 
it's kind of like, you know, your hero origin story, what, what food made you. Um, and so now my work really focuses on asking that question um, and also continuing to restory or update the narrative on soul food. That's beautifully said. And it reminds me, um, Lindsay, you know, uh, uh, in addition to the importance of local food for food miles or in addition to slow food, right, as an alternative to the the labor injustices of of treating agriculture as a factory and people's bodies as factories, you're getting at deep food, right, eating the food of your ancestors. And, um, And I think the reclaiming the reclaiming um, of foods that have been shaming is a really important transition to our friend, Dr. Enrique Salmon, everybody who has joined us. And um, Dr. Salmon, not only, you know, has an incredible expertise in indigenous food systems, his book, Eating the Landscape, but more recently, Irigara, American Indian Ethnobotanical Traditions and Science, gets at a kind of kin-centric way of thinking about both environmental ethics, but also this view of humans as almost a keystone species through bioregional food practices. But Lindsay, you'll also see a lot of instruments behind him. And in terms of you talking about reclaiming, you know, healing from shame around things like the watermelon, as a musician, Dr. Salmon has reclaimed the banjo for the blues. And I think you can understand the significance of that. And, and it's incredible to hear him him play that. But um, Enrique, welcome, my friend. And uh, welcome to Slow Food USA. You see Mara there, our, our host. And um, thank you so much for being here, Enrique. We're talking about um, how um, seed sovereignty and slow food are important practices in kinship, kinship in general. So uh, the floor is yours, my friend. It's nice to see all of you. And I apologize for logging in a little late i didn't pay attention to the materials i thought i wasn't on in, until one o'clock which is pacific time <laughs> you know anyway um i want to uh put out a couple of ideas when i'm thinking about seeds and then i'm going to go ahead and read something from a book that that john mentioned eating the landscape but when john first introduced this idea of me participating with this, I immediately thought about Mayan mathematics. And the reason why, it's just one of the things I teach. I teach American Indian Studies over here at California State University, East Bay. And I mostly teach agroecology, ethnobotany, those sort of classes. And of course, I teach American Indian worldview. And that's what brings me to Mayan mathematics, because as some of you, some of you probably know, Mayan mathematics was more than just quantifying the natural world and the cosmos. It was a representation of the divine and their attempt to celebrate and be in sync with the creation. And in their hieroglyphic system, if you want to call it that, there was a glyph for zero. They refer, they called Nick or Nick. And different scholars debate what the, the symbol was, but from what I've understood from talking with Mayan folks, it was a seed. If you ever look at Mayan glyphs for zero, 
it kind of looks like a football on its side with these little lines on top. And some people su suggested it's a shell. But then, like I said, the ones that I've talked to have said, well, it's a seed. And the idea is that instead of representing the absence of anything, which is what we think of as zero in our modern industrialized society, the Mayan Nik represents all possibility, all potential from the seed. And this leads me to thinking about seed saving as a sacred act. It's where the practical becomes sacred because as an old friend of mine, Dennis Martinez and I used to talk about how practical indigenous knowledge becomes sacred because it makes sense over time, over thousands of years. And seed saving is this practical practice that has become a sacred thing. Seed saving is a political act today. You know, to borrow from Vandana Shiva, where our food choices are political acts, when our choices become an act of defiance in the face of the corporatization of our food. And I like what the but Lindsay was mentioning as well, and you know that's also become a political act to eat our ancestors' foods, to decolonize our diets. When you were talking, Lindsay, I couldn't help but think about growing up, and because we didn't have a whole lot, there was a lot of times when my mom would make, you know, a pot of beans. And then she would take a tortilla and puts a little bit of, of some kind of fried meat and maybe some jalapenos and some other vegetables in there and some salsa and wrap it up. And that would be our dinner. Today, you spend 12 bucks on a fajita, which is the same thing. And when I was growing up, it was a poor person's food. You would throw nopalitos in there as well. Now nopalitos are hot cuisine, you know, H-A-U-T-E in Santa Fe and Sedona and places like that. So really interesting. But uh, let me see if I can read a couple of things from Eating the Landscape, which is this book here that I published um, a few years ago. And uh, you can see Irigawa, everybody, Irigawa over his left shoulder back oh, there. <laughs> yeah, and this is the more... More recent book. We got uh, they're both incredible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, let's see. This is from the beginning part of this book. Um, in my grandmother's kitchen. The dark creases on my grandma's face deepened when she smiled. To my young mind, she seemed a perfect grandma. Her white hair contrasted with her dark brown skin. The brightness of the sun deepened the wrinkles and creases on her face. She cooked the best cactus fruit jam from the large prickly pears that grew behind the house. She always had cookies at hand when I came to visit, and she seemed to know everything about the land and food. One day in our yard, which was dotted with herbs and fruit trees, I watched her bend over to pick us a sprig of bawena, spearmint, and hold it out for me to smell. Her old faded cotton dress with a flower print outlined her frail 80-year-old frame. 
Her full set of teeth glistened as she smiled, watching me enjoy the scent. Then in a voice made scratchy from smoking, she explained, that is what Bawena does to your stomach. It makes it smile. I cannot forget the many times when my grandmother and my mother rescued my upset stomach with some hot tea of Bawena, always after just one cup, my insides would begin to smile again, ready for some more food. I understand now what my grandma, my mother, as well as my grandfather and other family members were teaching me. They introduced me to Ramari traditional knowledge. I learned the names of plants, their uses, their place in Ramuri culture. And by the way, that's my people. I am Ramuri. Some people refer to us as Tarahumara. Anyway, I learned the names of plants, their uses, their place in Ramuri culture, philosophy, and cosmology. I understood them to be relatives and living beings with emotions and lives of their own. I learned that they were a part of my life as well, and I should always care for them. In short, my family led me into the traditional ecolo ecological knowledge of the Ramori. My grandparents' souls now rest in the Milky Way, as does my mother. But the other Ramori spirits have, that have departed this earth, but their lessons live on in my memory. I recall my grandmother's smiling face and her short shuffling gait. If I am ill and drinking a steaming cup of Bawena, I hear her scratchy voice describing the uses of other plants from our surrounding ecosystem. The knowledge I learned from my family was one aspect of a trove of culturally accumulated ecological knowledge. When they introduced me to individual plants, they also introduced my kinship to the plants and to the land from where they are, from where they and we have emerged. They were introducing me to my relatives. Through this way of knowing, especially with regard to kinship, I realized a comfort and a sense of security that I was bound to everything around me in a reciprocal relationship. The richest memories of my family are associated with plants. I think frequently remember the seasonings my grandmother, mother, and aunts lovingly added to our meals, epazote, cilantro, salvia, yerba buena, and of course, chile pekin, embodied the mural of flavors expressed at the table. These foods not only were eaten at home, but were also central figures at fiestas, weddings, and other gatherings. I recall the many plant-related lessons I learned from my grandma's herb house. The lattice structure was, was filled with hanging, dried, and living plants, as well as pungent and savory smells from the many herbs hanging from the ceiling. The roof was no longer visible through the layers of vines that draped over its eaves to the ground. On hot days, the interior would be nearly 10 degrees cooler. Inside, I would sit and watch my grandma grinding chiles and herbs and in an old stone metates and mortars while she talked about our origins and about our plant relatives. On my frequent visits there, I would enjoy the many aromas. It was during these times that she told me about the lives of plants and their characteristics. She described the relationships that plants had with each other. 
She taught me that the plants were not only plants, but also people. Some were Ramuri, whereas others were Apaches, and others were even non-Indians. When I was older, my grandfather introduced me to plants while we shooed away crows and other critters from his corn and beans and chilies that grew in a large backyard garden he maintained in Chula Vista, California. Sometimes I would help him rid the field of weeds using an old rusted hoe. The handle was gray with age as the years of its being worked in the sun had faded the natural color of the wood. There was a fracture in the handle that had been repaired with pieces of old stained cotton material. There was no telling how old the tool was. I never asked my grandfather as he rarely spoke except to give orders into motion with his dark skinned arm where I should be working. We would sit in the shade of a large fig tree for breaks. During these lapses in the work, I learned how corn and chili were our parents and protectors. He told me about the beginning of the world as he whittled on a piece of wood he had picked up somewhere. He taught me to respect the trees as relatives. Beautiful. And so it's from those, those kinds of lessons as I was being raised in this kind of environment that I um, developed this appreciation, as I mentioned in the reading, that everything around us is a direct relative and not in this metaphorical way. We breathe the same spirit, the same breath as everything around us. And it breathes the same thing and breath and spirit and energy that we do. There's stories. Enrique, what, does that, what does that make a seed then? I'm interested. I, I hear you on plants. I'm just curious then. What does that make a seed? A seed is the beginning of all of that. It is the original uh, relative in a lot of ways. And when we... I do this, I'm, I'm doing it right now. Um, I have a, a good size, you know, um, garden over here. And I, you know, I save seeds. And every year as I, I break out my seeds, you know, I, one of the first things is I do, I do is I, I will, um, I will pray to them. I will, in our culture, we burn copal over um, over things that we're trying to purify and celebrate. And so I will burn copal over the seeds and then I will um, light a pipe of tobacco and you know smoke over the seeds to prepare them for their their upcoming journey. And then I will, as I'm planting the seeds, it's it's in in my mind, I'm I'm singing, these songs, there's a couple of songs that we sing that my grandfather taught me. He never really stopped to teach me the songs. He would just do them. And so I would just learn through listening to him and, and essentially mocking him, you know, just, just copying what he was doing. Um, and this, the, this, the, the planting of the seeds themselves is a celebration. And it's, it's a reflection of how everything we do is a celebration. Everything we do is a work of art. And it's not necessarily the art you would see on a wall in a sculpture or even the cello behind me that I made. 
it's it's an ongoing act of creation. In a lot of indigenous worldviews, the creation never ended. In Judeo-Christian belief, the creation happened once. For indigenous peoples, the creation was a result of different natural occurrences. Sometimes eagle and coyote molded clay to create the first humans or others. Any, every, every native community has a different example or story about it. But the bottom line is that the creation is ongoing and it's our responsibility through our celebration, through our rituals, through our art to make sure it keeps happening. And planting or saving seeds, as I mentioned before, is a sacred act because it's a part of this ongoing creation. And then when we plant the seeds and watch them sprout and mature, we're, we're celebrating through our actions this ongoing creation. And then eventually we have yeah. to save them, which just keep continues the cycle. It's beautiful. I was in New Mexico with students two weeks ago and uh, a Nambe tribal leader, Pueblo leader, you know, they were looking at, you know, how the Rio Grande was going to be pumped from to, to bring water to Santa Fe. And we just kind of looked at how unsustainable that was in climate change as fires were starting and surfac was declining. He kind of said to the students who were mostly white, this won't last. So we're just waiting you out as long as we keep our language and our cultural stories. I feel like seed saving is very much part of that. I wonder if I could create a little bit of conversation between the two of you with the five minutes we have left. Lindsay, in your ancestor essay, um, you do talk about the possibility, right, um, of losing land, of losing your song, of losing your story, because it has happened to your ancestors. And that seems somewhat of a contrast, right, to the depth of connection to a piece of land that Enrique speaks of. Um, the Underground Railroad series, the, 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 the woman carries seeds with her, right? It's so vital. And I'm just curious, Lindsay, when you listen to Enrique talk about plants as parents and seeds as the origin of that, what does that make you think about in terms of a soul food as medicine? Is there any oral history of seed saving in that? Or does it make you think in new ways about the future of seed saving and the regenerating black food movement? Um, I think what, I guess like kind of relating the concept of soul food to seed saving and like kind of preserving. I think one of the things that I think is powerful um, is not only you can say things, but like Enrique was ex explaining about the story that also comes with something being saved. So what I think was powerful for me and even ending that story was whether you, there's the act of collectively like saving something and having that being passed on and passed on. But then there's also the things that are saved with us that weren't necessarily intentionally held to be saved but there it's still here it's still with us no one no one like saved it but it's still with us and it's still moving into the new generation whether that could be cultural norms or just the way things persevere whether they're intentionally saved or not and so one of the things that i end that particular 
essay in um, what kind of ancestor do you want to be? I ended with talking about like looking in the mirror and being like, um, and I talked a little bit in that reading about how my grandmother was an outcast in her family for features that she inherited from a family member who actually was never able to live with her or be with her, but they left them in her physical um, biology. And so one of the things that I kind of end off and look at, and that is thinking about when you look in the mirror, what story is being played out? So I ask what food makes you, but also when you look physically at your features and, 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 and your own um, topography, like what made you, your skin, your bones, your birth, like what ancestors are popping up in your face and your features that you don't know about. And so they weren't necessarily their story. It could be a great, great, great you know, whoever, their story wasn't necessarily just just like with the seeds. You don't necessarily know who actually maybe grabbed that first one and passed that on. You don't necessarily know who that person was, but the fruits of their labor are still playing out and people who might not have a connection to them, which is why I think it's so important to honor ancestors. Um, and when you begin to honor ancestors, you open up the collective of what a family is because you're starting to call like, your ancestors are my ancestors. You know, if the banana leaf made you, the banana leaf made me to an extent. So when we start to open up our family and our ancestral lineage, we start to be able to, to, to draw bigger circles than just what's around our immediate home and our immediate yeah. ones that we follow. So yeah, and, and there's really powerful, Lindsay. And what you say at the end there is, is if no one sings to you our family's song, if it is to be that one day you find yourself without me, without stories of where you came from, of who you are, know that some things can never be lost. Even without your name, you'll always be what you're made of, what we made of you. You have the heart of them field-working mamas, the pride of those sleeping car porters, and that beautiful face of yours. Well, it tells stories that you'll never hear. And you said popping up in the face. It sounds like seats, right? And, and in response, Enrique, you, you'll be the last voice we hear in this panel. Lindsay, that was beautiful. I hope I didn't cut you off there, but Mara's running at it. I'm so sorry. Mara, I wanted to cut you off with that powerful sentence from your essay. And Enrique, anything that, that, drew, that draws from you, what Lindsay just said? I'm sorry, I didn't, I missed the question. Just anything, any final thoughts uh, that Lindsay's comments there sparked in you? And you're our last voice of the panel. And we have about 30 seconds. <laughs> I, cut, I cut on to her mention of story. Story is all that we are. And when we wake up every day, like Lindsay suggested, we look in the mirror and we're just continuing the story that we are telling ourselves about, you know, about ourselves and continuing an ongoing ongoing story that may have began many, many, many generations ago. We can't help but continue that. Thank you both. Let's all thank Drs. Salmon and Lunsford. And, and Mara, I'm sure you have a message for folks about the break and what's on the other side. Friends, thank you so much. And it was such an honor. Lindsay, I'm sorry I cut you off at the end there. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. I, I'm... I hope this is a, tr a new tradition for our slow food um, events going forward. I think it's really great to hear from our artists and hear, you know, a different perspective than just the practical nature of planting seeds and saving seeds. We need to hear about how those connect with our 
spiritual side and also our histories. So thank you for really framing that out for uh, attendees. And I hope you'll join us in other sessions. We're going to hop over to our session now where we are going to thank you, Dr. John. You're just the best. I really appreciate all of the connections you've made. Awesome. We will end and go to our next session uh, where we build out our seed declaration together. Thanks, everyone. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.